Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthonics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. I'm so happy that you're here with us for another episode of the podcast. We've got a great guest lined up and an interview that I think you're going to really enjoy with Dr. Bob Hager. We're going to talk a little bit about business metrics, analytics, how to analyze your practice, and some of the things that Dr. Hager has learned as he's asked questions about his office and then turned to data to get answers for these questions. So it's a really informative and interesting interview. I'm excited to bring it to you guys. Before we jump into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about taxes. It's tax time here in the United States, and actually, I think this podcast will be released on tax day, April 17th, and so like me, I'm sure the topic of taxes is on your mind. This week, I wanted to share three thoughts about taxes that I think are important. The first is never let your quest for tax deductions influence you in making a purchase for your orthodontic practice. So the equipment reps and the car manufacturers love to tout the deductibility of these large purchases. And our tax code, of course, allows for things like Section 179 deductions or bonus depreciation, both of which can dramatically reduce your tax rate in the current year, even if you finance that purchase over time. Unfortunately, this is often a losing strategy, and it can tax or strain your cash flow in future years when there will be no offsetting deductions. So in fact, for many growing practices, taking a deduction this year when you may be in a lower bracket can be disastrous. So imagine a startup doctor, maybe they're in the 15% bracket and you accelerate your deductions into the current year only to find three or four years later that same doctor is now in the 37% or whatever the top bracket is gonna be at that time with no more deductions to use. So That would be a disaster. So the moral of the story is never let the tax tail wag the dog and to work with a tax planner to navigate these sorts of issues. My second recommendation is whatever your political persuasions are, whatever your personal biases or your future prognostications for where we're headed as an economy or as a a government and our tax laws, I believe that it's advantageous to diversify your savings from a tax standpoint. And what I mean by that is that I think it makes sense to have some of your investments in tax-sheltered accounts, like 401ks or IRAs, and to have some in regular taxable accounts, just brokerage accounts, where you can you know, buy mutual funds or stocks or whatever you want to buy. And if you qualify, you could also have some money in some Roth IRAs or Roth 401ks, health savings accounts. You know, I've got a number of different options there. So Just like we diversify among asset classes, I think it's also important that we diversify among these different investment vehicles or these investment accounts. And that gives us flexibility and options in the face of what is an unknown tax future. So changes to the tax law or even your own personal financial situation are difficult or impossible to predict. And the more options you have, I think the better. So diversify yourself, have some tax-protected savings, and have some you know, regular post-tax savings to give yourself options for the future. Third, manage your tax withholdings and estimates to avoid big surprises in April. And for most people, they'll say, oh, that's my accountant's job. You know, no one likes to write a big check when submitting their tax return. 
I don't agree with everything that Dave Ramsey says, but I really sympathize with this quote. He says, I hate taxes, but I hate unpaid, unfunded taxes even more. So I always like to be, you know, up to date on those so that I don't have a huge check to write. But of course, the other end of the spectrum isn't so good either. A huge refund means you've been loaning the government money at no interest, and then you might have to wait for that refund. If you're on extension, if there's some complication with your refund and it takes some time to come in, uh, I've had that before in the past and I've found myself really annoyed having to wait for a refund. If you do have a big refund due, there is a strategy for that. One option is to take that refund and indicate that you want to apply it to your next year's taxes and then immediately reduce your withholding or your estimates this month or this quarter which in essence gives yourself that immediate refund without having to wait for it to come back. So many of these issues, these tax issues, can be handled by a competent and proactive accountant, but I believe that the more you know and the more that you're aware, the better you can advocate for yourself. A successful orthodontist will pay millions, even tens of millions of dollars in taxes over their career, so give your taxes the attention they deserve. Let's move on to our interview, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of today's episode. This episode of the Elevate Orthodontics podcast is sponsored by the Aligner Intensive Fellowship Course, where together we will accomplish something greater. For orthodontists only, this course taught by Drs. Maz Mushiri and me, Jonathan Nikosesis, is a comprehensive four-month online course where you learn all things aligner therapy, from biomechanic principles to logistical systems for seamless office integration and the economics of more aligners in your practice. Think of it as a 12-chapter online dynamic textbook where the content is broken down in videos posted throughout each week, and you are able to ask questions in real time in a virtual classroom setting from the convenience of your own home or office on your own computer or cell phone without having to travel. With the ability of applying the course content to any aligner system or in-office solution of your choosing, the Aligner Intensive Fellowship is where together we will certainly accomplish something greater. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Robert Hager. I'm excited to have him on the show, and I'd like to tell you guys a little bit more about him before we bring him on the line. Dr. Robert Hager attended the University of Michigan for his undergraduate and dental school. Upon graduation, he ventured west to the University of Illinois in the Windy City, where he received his master's degree in orthodontics in 1989. From there, he and his new wife continued their westward migration and drove their Chevrolet Chevette with 96,000 miles across the country to open a new orthodontic practice in a Seattle suburb. Forced to sink or swim, Dr. Hager practiced as a dental hygienist and general dentist for several years while he built his orthodontic practice and established his professional reputation. Dr. Hager is still married to the same woman who puts up with him every day. He has three adult children. He enjoys hunting and fishing and loves being an orthodontist. Along the way, Dr. Hager has maintained a full-time, multi-site orthodontic practice. He's become board certified. He's worked with two PhDs to learn business analytics and ran statistical analysis for the Shulman Study Group. He is a contributing editor for the JCO, an adjunct professor at University of the Pacific, a practice management presenter at the University of Washington. He's published several articles on practice management. He's an active member of multiple interdisciplinary study groups and ran a company to analyze orthodontic practices called True Northo for three years. Dr. Hager, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thank you, Lance. I'm looking forward to chatting for a little bit. 
Yeah, we're we're actually recording this on Easter Sunday. We actually have some sun here in New England. It's about fifty degrees. How about out there on the West Coast? You know, it's a little cloudy, a little overcast, but um, you know, we we got a fair results of some basketball game yesterday, and we're looking forward to a Monday night national championship game. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That should be an exciting one. So I'll I'll be tuning in for that as well. Well, we're going to talk today a little bit about metrics and looking at our practice statistics to get answers. I'm constantly amazed by how much data our practices actually generate, especially if we're using practice management system that can collect that all for us. And and then, of course, we see in the popular media articles about, you know, unlocking the value in big data and machine learning and AI churning through data sets. At what point in your career did you start looking for answers, you know, using the analytics of your practice? Well, actually, that started a long time ago. And in, in some ways, it came from my wife. My wife um, ran a marketing research department for an ultrasound company. And she worked with a PhD who'd set up business analytics and how to really analyze the medical industry for an ultrasound company. And I saw what she was working at with this guy. And I brought Roger into my practice and said, all right, Roger, how do I bring these numbers in? What do I gather? How do I do it? How do I look at the best metrics and, and the best practices to make my practice better? So we set this up. Gosh, 2000, um, you know, 1999, 2000, we set this up in the practice. So you've been going at this for a while. So when you're looking, you know, at your practice and looking at metrics, how do you decide what's actionable, what's worth spending your time on? Sometimes, you know, I agree that what is measured gets improved. And other times, you know, I'm looking at something, maybe it's like my conversion ratio and I'm thinking, I'd like this to be better, but it feels like we're doing everything we can. How do, how do you know where to go to kind of get answers that are going to be useful to you? Well, I think you, you hit the, the, the pearl right there is that's where we started was with how do we measure conversion ratio? And I think conversion ratio, the traditional starts per exam is informational, but it's not actionable. So what we did is we set up um, and we used Excel in pivot tables and we broke down the new patient exam. Was it a phase one? Was it a full treatment? Was it an adult? Was it a child? And with pivot tables, you can take a relatively small or few number of columns and get just a whopping bit of information out of it. Like, how does this TC convert phase one? How does this TC do adults? How do they do interdisciplinary cases? And you can look at the conversion rates. You can, you can say, I don't really want to look at the patients that you're not recommending treatment for. We want to see which ones start today, which ones take weeks to start. Who's following up on that? And, and that's where we started with the analytics of the office. That was the first step. The second step is I wanted to look at treatment outcomes. I wanted to look at how many visits patients took. And we've got, oh, I, I don't know, I'm guessing a number like 5,000 or 6,000 consecutively finished cases in the practice where I look at what type of brackets we use. Did we put indirect bonding? Did we do direct bonding? What type of class two mechanics? So those were the two areas that I really wanted to learn more about. And that's what Roger helped me set up in the practice. Great. And I can't wait to talk about some of those things, these broad topics that, you know, are applicable to lots of orthodontists. I think sometimes when we look at our data, it's it's finding that one area of your practice which is leaking oil. And when I was thinking about this, it made me think of the famous first line from Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, and he says, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Do you, do you think that applies perhaps to orthodontic practices? 
Well, I guess maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure it does in, in a certain way. I kind of look at it kind of a different way. There's a couple of superstars in basketball that, that I think made a couple of comments, and they'd be Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. And when you go into practice, if you only do what you're good at, okay, you become very proficient at that. But those two athletes would say, I go to practice, and if I can't go left and, and my defenders are all covering me going left, I'm going to go left and I'm going to go left and I'm going to do what I'm worst at until I get better at it. And we need to look at where we struggle in our practices and in each one of our practices can be different and say, how do I make that better? Is it conversion rate? Is it treatment efficiency? What is it? And solve that problem. So kind of identifying the weaknesses, maybe not that our practice has to be a mirror image of, of another practice, but at least understanding you know, where our weak spots are. Yes. And, and don't be afraid to address them. You know, I think that's a useful thing to dive into. Great. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about clinical efficiency. You mentioned that's a huge area of focus for me this year. What, you know, what are the things that when you started to dig into those numbers that started popping out at you in terms of reducing your number of appointments per case or profitability per visit? What were the areas that you felt you could make actionable improvement? Well, first we looked at a large data set of our practice. We said, all right, how long does it take to treat the average patient? And it's totally different whether it's class one or class two because of the um, AP correction. Okay, so we said, all right, on a class one case, where if we looked at the data, if we had three major areas that extended treatment time, no-shows, loose brackets, and repositions, we said those three factors and they contributed between 0.8 and 1 extra month for each one of those. But the issue was, on average, we had one loose bracket, one or less than one, a little less than one, less than one missed appointment, but we had four repositions. So where we could finish a case that had none of these variables, these three, these three variables, we would be done in, in 13 months, but our average case was done in 19 months for that. And we said, all right, how do we attack this? And we said, well, the big nut there is the reposition. So I said, how do we do that? So I chose to do indirect bonding. Some people can choose to use various splints and jigs, whatever. It's bracket placement. And we found out that we were able through just changing the bracket placement in indirect bonding, I was able to lower my treatment times between two and four months a case. Right. So is that something you still do in your practice today? I've been doing that for yeah, a long time. If I had to guess, it would be, I don't know, 10 or 12 years or so. So do you think that makes maybe then the case for some of these digital systems in orthodontics, you know, like Invisalign or SureSmile, Insignia, customized appliances, you know, it seems like they'd be more efficient in theory. On the other hand, I have some doctors and friends who have gone kind of in on those and, and after a while were put off by the costs or, or the time. What do you think about, you know, digital orthodontics as maybe an, an answer to the bracket placement question? Well, I, I think that's the logical question because it's very time consuming. By the time, if you're starting, you know, three to five patients a day, I, I actually put the lines on the models. I place the brackets and somebody else makes all the trays. But I'm very involved with that because I see the finished product. When we looked at data that, of people that use the various digital models, they didn't really show shorter treatment times. The only ones that really made the difference were the ones that did it themselves. So I don't know if it's because they're finishing them they're putting the brackets on. So I haven't really delved into the other digital models, the for pay ones, because the expense and stuff. 
because I just haven't seen the data that would support that that actually helps treatment time. So when you're doing an indirect bond, obviously that means you're bringing the patient back on another day to get started. And there's a lot of people now advocating for same-day starts and getting patients started that same day. Do you have a thought on maybe how those two interact with each other? Well, there is an issue. I mean, I actually have no problems. My schedule's pretty full each day. So bringing somebody back in a week or two is, is probably a little advantageous for me. The other thing is I still ban probably half of the upper first molars. I don't ban lowers. I use a fair number of transpalatal bars to, to rotate those molars and get a little transverse dimension when needed. So putting a separator in for a band and doing an indirect bonding is not a problem for me. We just tell patients, they said, doing it this way shortens your treatment time. So we'd rather take the impression today and make that mold and, and do the indirect bonding and put the braces on, on the model and then transfer them to your mouth. So it, it hasn't been a problem. You know, the other thing that I think when we're talking about clinical efficiency that people often think about is self-ligating brackets versus twin brackets. I don't know if that's something that, you know, you were able to kind of look at as well in the course of all of this research. Actually, I did. I took a situation, this was probably, oh, I had to guess, it was probably six or eight years ago. I said, all right, after I got the bracket placement down, I said that was the biggest issue. And then I said, all right, self-ligating is the next question. And I took a 300 of the next cases to be treated, and I alternated them between smart clip and innovation. And I put all the braces on them, same way, indirect bonding, so I could compare indirect to indirect. And we found the treatment time wasn't any less, the number of visits. The first half of treatment, like like has come out in, in multiple studies, self-ligating is faster, but in the detailing, the finishing, it had as a, it's slower. It's more difficult. So whatever time you make up in the beginning, you lose in the end. So we found the treatment time was pretty much exactly the same. And I actually liked the finishes better with the twin brackets than I did with the self-ligating. I felt I could torque the brackets and get those little angulations and torques better. Right, just the tolerances or the engagement seemed to be better or, or whatever the case was, you just liked how they were turning out more in your hands. Kind of the expression of the torques. I mean, with the smart clip, those clips were more difficult. And with the um, innovation, the, the clips on the lowers kept coming. They, they would break off or they couldn't get in and fully activation if I had to torque it or something. Yeah. Right. So I think this raises maybe a broader question then about technology. It's, it's hard sometimes to know what's going to have a real ROI for your practice. For instance, intraoral scanners seem to be the big thing now. But I'm kind of reading that maybe CBCT is kind of wavering a little bit in terms of popularity, and maybe even in-office printing seems to be having a hard time finding its place. Uh, how do we think about technology or, or investments that are going to help us in our practice? Well, th those are great questions. First of all, I have a scanner, but I just got an intraoral scanner about a year ago. And even though my practice is fairly large, we just have expanded Invisalign. I felt you had to have somewhere in the 60 to 75 Invisalign starts a year to justify using a scanner to do that. CBCT, I don't bother. I have two offices. I have so many other offices in, in my area that have CBCT, the surgeons of the periodontist. If I see, you know, that nearly narrow vault with that, you know, those inflamed anterior gingival tissue, and I, and I think I need an airway, I can have them take that. If I see um, an impacted cuspid that I can't palpate either on the palate or, or on the buckle, then I'll send over and have that done. So there's enough people in my area that have them that I just didn't feel that it was justification for owning one myself. Technology is always an interesting thing. You know, I think one thing that's interesting is that some technologies have been so successful that we don't even think about them as technology. You know, at one point, computerized charting and imaging, if you go back and read some of the old 
articles, you know, people were talking, should we do this? Or, or, I mean, I guess you go way back to bonding agents or prescription brackets. But I think there's obviously this balance between not getting too far ahead of ourselves, but not falling behind either in terms of what was kind of the standard of care. Well, you certainly have to. You always have to keep your eye in reading. One thing I've said in my practice, the only constant in your practice is change. Okay. So if we understand that change is the norm, we have to always be reading about it and watching for it and looking for it and finding ways to to bring it into our practice. But we have to do it on what makes practical, logical, financial sense. And that's the balance. Where do we do this? Where do we wait? Let somebody else do the bleeding edge. You mean we shouldn't just like emotionally buy it on the AAO floor? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be how like 90% of things are purchased in orthodontics, I think, right? There's, there's a lot of emotional purchasing, that's for sure. And that's because orthodontics has been a relatively high profit business and orthodontists have a high margin and they like new toys, and new gizmos and they buy them. Yeah, that's for sure. No, and that's true. I mean, you know, we scan now our patients for their retainers at the visit prior. And when they come in, I have the lower bonded retainer, which is pre-bent by the lab. I used to do those all myself. And I've looked at the cost of it and it's really high. I mean, it's it's kind of annoyingly high. But on the other hand, that was like my least favorite thing to do in the office. And now when I see those D-banding appointments on the schedule, you know, I feel like, oh, this I can deal with this. I can live with this. But it's definitely a luxury. I don't think it makes a ton of business sense based on how much time it was actually spending me. It's more just like I had an aversion to that one task. Sometimes when you buy things to save time or stress, that's justification in itself right there. I look at it as an alginate impression to make a retainer is so fast and so easy in my practice. It's it's nothing to do. Yes, it's impression. Yes, the patients don't like it. But the biggest advantage of scanning, the biggest advantage is if they lose their retainer, we have a digital product that we can then make a 3D model for and then go back and realign them if we choose to. If they go crooked and we just took an alginate impression, we then have to go reset them and move them back. And that's much more time consuming. Right. But time-wise for an Elgin impression, for a lower impression, boom, you just take it. You know, they're going to take the braces off next week, take the impression. The lab makes the retainer. It's, I don't know, 15 bucks or something for the lab, 18 bucks to make a lower impression. They come in, they have jigs on them. The assistants can cement that lower three to three before we even get there. So it's not my time at all. Sure. That's definitely true. So I've read some of the articles that you wrote in the JCO regarding one-phase versus two-phase treatment from this clinical efficiency and profitability standpoint. And, you know, our decision to initiate treatment should be based on what each patient actually needs. But I was surprised that the philosophy of the doctor had such a big impact on kind of the composition of the practice and the profitability, and maybe not even in the way that most doctors would expect. Two-phase treatment is, is an interesting thing that's been studied a lot. And I did some stuff in my own office and measured it. I also did some stuff across multiple practices, and we looked at it. When a practice is operating at peak efficiency, meaning there's not a whole lot of extra capacity in an office, to do two-phase treatment, it's 12 to 15 more visits to your office. It's typically two to $3,000 more for the patient. So two to 3000 12 to 15 more visits. If the practice is operating your capacity, just on a financial basis, if you have a philosophy for it, I'm, I'm not addressing that, okay? You do what, you, what you're comfortable doing. But if you're operating busy, it makes very little sense to do two-phase treatment if your practice is really busy. If not, the extra visits, they don't matter. It doesn't hurt you to do that. 
and you get patients in when they're younger and you, you know, the term they used to use is you brand them. You put that lower holding arch and you put your brand on them and then you own them for later. But if the practice isn't as busy, then the two phase makes sense to do more of it. There's two things we see in trends. Younger orthodontists do more two-phase and they take out less teeth. The older you get in the practice, you see less two-phase treatment and you see more extractions. Hmm, that's an interesting statistic. Yeah. Do you think that's because the old people are out of date or because they're experienced? I uh, Well, me? I've been doing this almost 30 years. How do you think I'm going to answer that? Okay. No, what, what, no, I think what happens is, is you have these, these ideal goals of not taking teeth out. And then when you go through some of this, you find out, oh my God, look at the recession on this long one. God, the teeth are sticking out and they look like they're all teeth when they're done. I should have just taken teeth out in this one. Or I got into this non-extraction and I got no help. So you say, you know what? We're just not going there. Maybe it's taking out second buys instead of first on the upper because you don't really want to get incisor retraction or, or airway, whatever you want to control, but you'll do more of that. Two-phase, I used to do a lot more of that when I was younger, and I had a dad sit down because we would show him the pictures before phase one, at the end of phase one, at the start of phase two, when we were going to start. We'd say, this is what we're going to do. And he looked at me and he said, so what did I get for my money in phase one? It doesn't look that much different. Yeah. Ouch. You know what I said? I said, frankly, not very much. I said, now let's fix it. Yeah, I've had that almost exact conversation and given almost that exact answer too, because I looked at stuff and said, yeah, you, you've got me there. We, we tried our best, but I totally agree. Um, you know, it's a tricky balance. I think there, you talked about branding the patient and I, this just happened to me recently where I obviously did a poor job reading the parent. I thought it was a totally optional phase one and I would wait if it was my kid. But, you know, they went and got a second opinion and got started somewhere else. And I thought, oh, I guess we could have done that. But, you know, on the other hand, you've got the patients that trust you more if you're not too eager to get started and, and you wait. So that's another part of the psychology of it that may be difficult to manage. You said a couple of things there, okay, that piqued my interest. Um, one is multiple opinions. When the person is getting multiple opinions, what are they saying? What are they saying to you? There's different scenarios, I think sometimes it's like when they've gotten one opinion, they don't like it and they go somewhere else. But on the other hand, some people, I think, go into it with the thought, oh, we're going to do our due diligence and we're going to get multiple opinions like you might if you were getting a quote for a new roof. Right. What they're saying is they want to be in control. Right. They want to be in control of the decision process. So anybody that has two opinions in my office, we all are getting a second opinion. We always present, I could do A or I could do B, but this is why I'm going to choose to do A. This is why I'm going to choose to recommend A. I can do B if this is something that fits you better and what you want. But we give them that choice because they're telling you they want they want a choice. They're getting multiple opinions. That's a good point. And the other thing you want, I always say to somebody, is they're coming into your practice. We're very honest with them. I said I can do you know five millimeters overjet. It's way better treated later. Everybody's shown that and studied that. So I can do this in two phases. It's going to take me. 12 to 14 months now, and then that 12 to 14 months is only about three months less or four months less, phase two, then have we done nothing at all? It's 12 to 14 more visits. It's two to $3,000 for the same exact results. Which do you want to go with? Yeah. We need to educate the patients to see what they want and let them choose. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I had Jeff Kozlowski on the podcast, and he, he had some language where he said, could we do something now and help? Absolutely. Could we wait and do this later? Absolutely. In other words, I think just what you're saying, you know, present those options, put the decision back in the patient's hand. 
Right. And I will tell you, if you really tell them it's 12 to 14 more visits plus the additional money, there's very few people that will sign up for that. We have some. We absolutely have some because the teeth are so messed up that they're going to spend all that time and money in the shrink's office like a lot of, <laughs> because, because the impact of the child's development. So fix those by all means, fix those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some other systems in our practice. I know you spent a little bit of time trying to set up you know, financial statements to help mirror what's going on in your practice. And you know, a few weeks ago, I was talking on the podcast about managerial accounting. What, what are we supposed to learn from our financial statements? Well, the financial statements, and I think this is part of an overall practice. If you look at practice management, I kind of look at it as to five points on a star. First is how do you get the patients in the practice, the marketing side? Do you go to dentists? Do you go to the direct the community? Then the second step is how do you convert them to starts? What are the TCs doing? What dental practices convert more? What marketing activities convert more? Where do you want to then impact the marketing decisions? The third one is how do you treat them? The treatment mechanics. How do we look at treatment proficiency? The fourth is how do you manage the employees? And the fifth one is how do you set up a, a QuickBooks or accounting system? And that QuickBooks has to have expense categories for every marketing. It's got to have specific staff areas. It's got to have clinical areas and it's got to have employee metrics. So practice management, you can't just look at these into five individual pillars. You really do need to integrate all five of these pillars together. And if your QuickBooks isn't set up to balance your marketing, it isn't set up to balance your employee management or your conversion rate, then it's just a tool about money, but it's not really a tool to help you manage the business. Well, that's got me curious. How do you use QuickBooks to improve your conversion ratio? It's marketing conversion. Okay, how much money did you spend in each one of these marketing areas? How many new patient exams came from them? What were the conversion rates on each one of those? But your QuickBooks has to be set up to have an expense for those marketing categories. Let's say you market and you get 20 patients from one area. You only convert 10% of those, but you spend you know $2,000 on that marketing. Well, spend that 2000 somewhere else. Right, so looking at the actual, not only the ROI in terms of patient exams, but even how many of those then converted into starts. Absolutely. That's always tricky for us. We, I don't know if we're just too lazy or we don't get good information. I, you know, trying to really determine an ROI on marketing seems to be a constant challenge. Like we get motivated on it and then it kind of all falls apart and then we try again and it's hard to keep that going for us. Well, you can't do it on, int- it's, well, you can, but it's super expensive and hard to do on internal marketing because internal marketing is everything. We do from the play where we answer the phone to the way we talk to them, how we greet them and meet them and, and just honor them as people and, and talk to them directly. So that's internal. The external is much easier to market because you have to ask the patient two things. One, what is the primary driver for coming to the office? And two, what are all of the ways that they heard about your practice? So you can then run metrics on awareness factors, how they heard about you, but you can also run them on the primary driver. They have to pick one, why they chose your practice. And you guys are pretty fastidious about collecting that information, it sounds like. Yes, we have a little sheet that we give the patient and they sit down and then TC goes through what's going to go on. It's a a little tiny piece of paper and it says, check off all the ways you heard about our practice and circle the primary reason you came to our office. It's super easy to get. We got to get that (laughs) back in place. Like I say, we've played around with it, but So when we're looking at our financial statements, you know, I'm constantly looking at the profit and loss, and I usually look at the kind of the rolling 365-day thing. 
Can we manage our practice like that by looking in the rearview mirror? Do we need a budget, like a perspective budget? What are your thoughts on that? Everybody that says if you set up a budget, you're going to be better. You're going to live to that budget. You're going to go to that budget. I don't have a specific budget. I'm not one that has done that. Would I benefit from it? Yes, I would. I've done this a number of years, but I have a pretty good idea where I'm spending money. And I am very blessed to have somebody, an assistant in my office, who's been with me 20 years. She does all of the purchasing, and she's just really, really good. Okay? And I don't have to even think twice about the expense side of the of the purchases. But I look at it quarterly, every six months. I don't look at it month to month because things change one month to the next. That's kind of like I said, why I I usually try to look at the past year. You know, So right now I would be looking at April through March and then as it goes along, because I agree, there's some variation there. And we've written out some budgets in, in like October, November of the year. And I think they're helpful from a planning standpoint. But I agree, you get a little bit of a sense of where the money is going just after you do it a couple rounds. Yeah, I have a marketing budget. That's what I absolutely do. I look at how many patients came from all the various referral sources over the last year. And we start the marketing plan in September for the following year. So by the time we look at what's our projected collections for the year, how much do we want to spend per new patient exam? And then we look back at how many patients we got from all of those sources last year and where the starts were and where the awareness was. And then we adjust our budget for the following year. I mean, obviously, it's a constant battle between like, let's try something new versus put more money towards something that's already working, killing off the old ones. You know, even even like with dentist relationships, I feel like sometimes I don't know, should I be focusing more on kind of developing new relationships or should I be doubling down on existing dentists? Well, that's the age old question is how much do you market to the people that you are working with to keep them? And how much do you then expand into other areas? to try to do that. What we have said is we have a core group of dentists, as you brought this up, that I'm constantly meeting with, talking to. In my practice, because we've been out there for, you know, 28 years, going on our 29th year, we have a very large percentage of our patients come from dentists. Okay. So that that's changing over time. And I can get into all of that in, in a few minutes if you want. But, and then we say there's five or six other practices I would love to I'd love to see more of them. So we treat those five or six just like we do our core group for the next year. And the idea is maybe we can turn one, maybe two of those five into increasing. I don't have a goal to to gain all five, but if I can increase one or two of those, and if those two go up, great. That may go to a different five the next year. Right. So a little of both. Yes. But what we probably spend the majority, I would say probably 75% on our existing, 75, 80, and then 20 or 25 and, and trying to generate new. What about external marketing? You mentioned maybe that the makeup of your new patient pool is changing a little bit. What are the strategies that have proven effective or that you've been able to measure have a good ROI outside of dentists or existing patients? There's the future because when we see it out here in Seattle uh, market, it's it's tremendously saturated. But what we're not seeing, and one of the older dentist cells a young dentist isn't buying that practice. What's happened is corporations are buying all of those practices and they're putting in associates or they're bringing in corporate or they're bringing in specialists that come and they travel around or they have to refer to one. So the younger dentists, when we got started 20 years ago, we targeted younger dentists that we would grow with. The younger orthodontists today don't have that pool of younger dentists. So they're having to do a lot more direct marketing to the community. In my case, because I've been out there 28 years, I still have a very large dental referral base. 
a lot. But I'm looking at this saying, you know, I'm going to do this for another 10 years. I've got to now expand into my direct marketing to the consumer, even though I've lived off the dentist for a long time. And when I say lived off, I'm talking 45, 50% of my new patient exams. The primary driver is the dentist. Right. I then need to say, all right, where are the rest of them coming from? Well, we get between 22 and 28% each year of our practice come from either siblings or parents. We get somewhere 6 to 9% from the internet. And we get about 14 to 18% from patient referrals. So when you look at those factors, we say, all right, all of these external marketing items in a practice might only be 6 to 8% of my, of my new patients for all of these external ideas. So I don't want to throw a whole lot of money at 6 or 8% of my practice. But that 6 or 8% of external marketing driving of new patient exams is going to expand some. But what we're doing is we're targeting the internet, making sure that we've got good reviews out there. That's the next step. And then we're doing some things, external marketing, mostly sponsoring group activities in the community. That's what we're doing right now. Right, right. I love that breakdown. So you're in your practice, it's 45% dentists. And then yeah. the next was? Siblings. Yeah. Siblings is between 22 and 27%. Some, I had one year it was 29. Right. You know, but it's usually 22, 27%. And siblings and parents, by the way. Siblings and parents. And then friends and family would be next? Yeah. Patient referrals. And that can be, yeah, friends. And that can be, I guess it's been as low as 10, maybe 11 and as high as 18. Okay. That's that's an interesting breakdown. I, I love how you just have numbers for these things. Yeah, you know, Most of us just have like feelings or opinions, but you actually have numbers, uh, which is <laughs> kind of refreshing. So, and these, and these are primary drivers, by the way. Awareness ones is different because they can be aware of your practice through other means. Right. But we're starting to look at the external direct-to-consumer marketing. As we get older, the dentists that have worked with us for a year, their practices are getting older and they're not seeing the same number of children in their practices either. Yeah. So their number of referrals go down some. That's why we're expanding more on the internet stuff and internet presence and direct-to-consumer. You mentioned one of your five practice drivers was employee or team management. What do we need to know about you know how to appropriately staff our clinic and our administrative team and how to compensate them? What are the kind of low-hanging fruit there? Um, there's lots of factors there. First of all, in your TC, what I do is I look at the conversion rate. I want to see my treatment coordinators converting 75% of a child, a full case ready to go. On a phase one, they should be converting close to 90%. But on a full case, they should be doing 70, 75%. In an adult, if I can get 50%, 50, 55, if I can do that on adults ready, I'm golden. And the way I use those metrics, and this isn't the financial one, I'll get into that in a minute. I use those metrics as bonus targets for them. If they hit that 75% of child, they get a quarterly bonus. If they get the 55% of adults, they get a quarterly bonus on that. I take out the surgical and the interdisciplinary ones because those conversion rates are much lower. And the core part of our business are the full cases and adults and children. So that's why I wanted to make that as the target. Financial numbers. We've seen all kinds of, oh, it's 20%, oh, it's 25%, oh, it's 28%. We've seen all of those parameters and numbers for a practice, okay? And it really depends on what you're including. Are you including the medical expense? Are you including the profit sharing? Are you including the 401k? What are you including in those numbers that really help you manage your practice? So start by looking at 
what you're producing per FTE, full-time equivalent employee. We want to do, we want a target to be 190, 195. I think we're about 220. Uh, 225 is what we're producing per FTE in the practice. And then you want to see how many patients per day per assistant. How many patients can each assistant see? And that's going to totally depend on one Invisalign and two-phase. The more two-phase treatment you do and the more Invisalign, you can see 18, 20 patients a day per assistant. The more adults you see, the more single stage, you're going to be down in the 12 to 14 patients per assistant. So when we see these numbers, oh, I want to see 15, that 15 number just doesn't, it doesn't resonate until you know what the practice does. Do they see retainer checks for three years every four months? (laughs) Do they only see one? So you can't just throw a number at something until you see what's there. So now you've got the employee production and the collections per FTE, and you've got the assistant levels. So now you look at what percentage, I look at just the wages of collections. And if we can get just the true wages, maybe 10.5% clinical, 10% clerical, and clerical would be the TCs, financial coordinator, any front desk people, that's your clerical and your clinical, if you can, all your assistants in your lab to do that. So I look at those percentages to get an idea of where we're at. Then the benefits go on top of that. And I think with the benefits, if you're sitting around 24, 26%, once you throw all the benefits in on top of it, that's kind of what you're looking at. Right. So it's maybe 20% if you're looking at just the core salary. 24, 26, if you look at all the benefits on top of it. I think that those are good things to be looking at. And it's interesting how I like how you break it down from several different angles, because I agree that, you know, sometimes one data point isn't enough. So number of patients per day per production per equivalent, you know, overall percentage, I think all of those factor into how we want to do this. But I think having some benchmarks and having a plan, again, helps us to make better decisions because that's an area where I think a lot of people struggle to know, especially when your staff come to you and kind of pressure you and say, we need raises or, you know, Susie's getting paid this much at the office down the street. It's kind of a thorny uh, area. Right. And when we've all had this, everybody that's run a business. And the only thing I say when that happens, I say, I need you to tell me what they're making in their retirement plan, what they're making in their medical, what they get dental, what they get uniform allowance, what their vacation is. I want you to know all of these factors because every one of our practices is structured differently. In my practice, we're heavily weighted on 401k and pension plan. We do really great. And, I, and I'm just a strong believer in helping people set them up for later years. And, and the hourly wage is fairly competitive. I mean, it's really good as well. But can they find an hourly more? Yeah. But I said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear one factor in somebody's employment and their total compensation because that's not how we're structured. That's that's definitely definitely the challenge there. So Good. Well, Bob, this has been a great conversation. I actually want to finish with this one question here. Do you have an opinion on which orthodontic software, if any, that helps doctors get the information they need? Or, you know, what do you think about a service like Gage that tries to clean up some of the data and present it? You know, how can doctors really dig in and get into their practice data a little bit more? This is a great question because I actually went to, this was years ago when I, I pretty much have used Excel for a lot of this, but I got to pull the practice, the numbers out of there in order to do those Excel spreadsheets. I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of difference between practice management softwares. There's little bits of difference between them, like cloud-based. Is this financial is a little bit better? This one's word processing is a little bit better. But to go through the time and the expense to switch them, unless you have a major problem, I'm not sure that they're that much different today. I think 
Gauge is probably the best product out there for comparing your practice to others. I looked at Gauge and I know Mary Beth and I know the company fairly well. And I think what they do is, is really a good service. It didn't dig deep enough for me. <laughs> it didn't give me enough actionable metrics to really go after in the expense side of the practice. So I actually have stuck with a lot of these, the pivot tables and the analysis doing it that way. It, it, it's some data. It's collection to do that. But boy, it gives you a lot more information. Great. Well, Bob, we're going to transition and finish here with our Elevate Express 8. I'm going to ask you these eight quick questions and get some quick answers from you. How's that sound? All right. Let's go. Let's do it. What's your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? Uh, Herbst Appliance. I've just found Herbst over the years. A lot of emergencies with it. That's our number one area for emergencies in the practice, but I, I still can't get as predictable results as I can with that, with anything else I've tried. What's your standard retention protocol? Uh, if I can do it, I'll do an upper Essex and a lower bonded three to three. And what we tell patients and when they ask questions is, if I look at a year or two from now, whether I use removable or fixed wires, the patients pretty much look the same after a year or two. But I've been in practice long enough to see 10, 20, almost 30 years out. And when I look at the patients 20 years later, those that have a bonded retainer have straighter teeth than those that have removable. As good as the intentions are in the beginning, they just don't last 20 or 30 years on enough people for me. Who are your role models or mentors? Interesting question. And, and I look back when I started teaching years ago, I said, who is it that I think about and who is it that I think they, they, they do a great job? And it was those people that made me think. I had a, a teacher that recently passed away at University of Illinois, Bernie Schneider. Great guy. But he just made you think about stuff and look at stuff and say, how do I answer that question? So Bernie was great. And then years ago, before we could do a lot of computer stuff, I went to five of the top orthodontists in the Puget Sound area out here from Vince Kokish to Bob Little to uh, Terry Wallen to a couple other names out here. And I had a series of questions I asked them. How many patients a day? How are you practicing? How are you doing? And I didn't really want to emulate them, but I wanted to find out what did it take to practice like them? And then who did I want to be? Now that's changed, of course, over time. But I think those are, those are the people that have helped me a lot. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument? Gosh, favorite orthodontic product or instrument. I think it would probably be, <laughs> in many ways, it's, it's indirect bonding. Yeah. It really does make a difference. And I know there's studies out there show it doesn't make any difference or it shows a half a month. That's really not what I've found at all in my practice. It's been much better than that. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Um, I, we took a vacation with the family to Italy. I did that a couple years ago. My kids are now 20, 22, and 24. Crazy. Uh, two years ago, we were able to get one week where they all had that week off for some wild reason. We said, let's go to Italy. We just closed the office and just went there and we just had a great time. Yeah. My wife and I spent our 30th anniversary, went to Paris. That's great. Um, and then there's a place down out north of Puerto Vallarta called Punta Mita. It's a four seasons out there. And we've gone there a couple of times. And being on the West Coast, we've gone to Hawaii. We've gone there and we would go to Punta Mita over Hawaii any day. It's The beaches are as nice or better. There's less people and it's about a third less money and it's more enjoyable and relaxing. Awesome. What's one great book that you've read recently? You know, the last one I just finished was just more for pleasure. Uh, and that was the Robert Kennedy book. And I thought that was good. But the, the one is um, by um, Michael Lewis. It's called The Undoing Project. Hmm. 
I mean, he breaks down the, the thought process of how we make decisions and the psychology of what's the last thing you saw? How did that impact your decision? Are we able to analyze all groups of data to make a decision or is it just the last thing we saw? Huh. Well, that sounds like right up your alley. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. <laughs> awesome. What bracket system are you currently using? I use, uh, it's kind of a combination of everything. It's American vertical slot and it's bi-dimensional. So it's 018, 2 to 2, and then it's 022 slot in the back and it has vertical slot in them. And what's one area of orthodontics that you would like to learn more about in 2018? You know, we sit down at the end of each year and we say what worked and what didn't work last year. And we had like three employees turn over. I, I rarely have employees turn over my practice. We had three last year. And I came to realize that my job descriptions were too vague. So what we're doing is we're going through every job description and we're writing down what reports they do on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, so that and somebody can come into my practice as a new employee and that systems are there that they'll uplearn and take over that spot much faster. Hopefully, I won't have what we did last year with a few employees, and there were one for pregnancy and one had to move away for job and I mean different things like that. But that's the number one thing I need to do is really, really take my practice job descriptions and say, if somebody walked in tomorrow, can they read this stuff and know 80 to 90% of what I expect from them without having to go through personal training? That's great. Bob, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing this information. There's a lot, I think, to go back and listen to. I can't wait to go back and unpack some of the information that you shared here. But again, thanks for your time. Well, Lance, I appreciate what you do. I mean, it's wonderful to have somebody that can interview people that is comfortable, that knows the right questions to ask and make sharing part of it. I'm exceedingly grateful to the orthodontists that were ahead of us that made our profession what it is today. And if there's any way that we can leave it in a better position than what we found it, um, that's just returning the favor for those that helped us. Absolutely. So thanks for doing what you do. Oh, yes. If, if people have follow-up questions for you or if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, email's best, and it can be at, at drhager at mybraces.net. And the last name is spelled H-A-E-G-E-R at mybraces.net. That's by far the best way to get a hold of me. All right. Well, that sounds great. Bob, happy Easter, and I hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Lance. Nice talking to you. Happy Easter to you. And that's a wrap on another episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. A special thanks to Dr. Hager for coming on the show today and sharing his insights with us. Also, a special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, the Aligner Intensive Fellowship. Check them out at alignerfellowship.com. Hopefully, we'll see you guys at the upcoming AAO. Have a great week and talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 